Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is taken from the sixth and seventh chapter of the book of Acts. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They presented him to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on him. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from some who began to argue with Stephen but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So they stirred up the people. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Acts 6 and 7, selected. Hmm. Step wasn't as bad as I thought. (laughs) Good morning. morning. All right. I'm Dan. I'm your talker today. Uh, Unlike the past few weeks, I'm not going to give Ryan any real estate up here, so you're stuck with me for a while. Please be patient. I just want to ask one thing today. I only have one goal for my talk. (laughs) And that's that when I'm done talking at the end, at the end of service, I want everybody to go receive prayer at the back. Adults and kids and newcomers and regulars and guests from out of town who have never been here before and are never coming back. It's okay. When I'm done talking, 
everybody get up and go get prayed for. It's kind of scary saying that because I'm only going to convince like six of you to do it. (laughs) I've only got like 25 minutes and it's mostly just reflections on my own life. Um, But the Holy Spirit's here and he's working on the rest of you. Some of you can already feel it. It sucks, right? Uh, That little nudge or uh, shove or impression or suggestion to do something you didn't want to do when you walked in this morning, you probably already have your excuses. Sounds stupid, right? Uh, It might feel stupid when you do it. It might be stupid. You have lunch plans. It might take time. If you look around the room, there's a lot of you, and it's going to take time for you all to get prayed for. Shut up. Just do it, okay? Don't be a jackass. <laughs> I'm going to pray. <laughs> Holy Spirit, nothing's going to happen here that's any good unless you do it. Lord, please nudge us all the way you want us to go. I know you don't always work this way, but this morning, just overcome our defenses. Let us find our feet walking down a path we weren't expecting and we didn't plan for ourselves, but that's yours. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to go back one second. I told you not to be jackasses. I wasn't just making fun. It's the actual title of my sermon today. Don't be a jackass. Your program says stiff-necked. That's because LMCC programs are rated G. Uh, I want to talk about this concept in the Bible, this biblical concept. It is basically the permanent state of the human heart, even of the believer's heart, and that's the state of a jackass. Uh, To go back to the G version, stiff-necked, that's one of many ways the Bible describes it. It describes it sometimes as hard-hearted, or having ears but refusing to hear, having eyes but refusing to see, being uncircumcised in your ears, in your heart, whatever that means. Uh, but the one I want to talk about is stiff-necked. That's the one I've been reading about lately and that I like and that I actually Googled recently, so I'm the expert. <laughs> stiff-necked, it shows up in the Bible like a dozen times, and so if you've read the Bible, you've probably seen it, and in context, it kind of made sense to you. You kind of got the gist. It was usually someone who had just screwed up, and now they're stiff-necked. Okay, stiff-necked is a person who's screwed up. But like any idiom or metaphor or any other use of language that nobody uses anymore, I figure I was missing some depth on this thing. So like I said, I Googled it, and it turns out that to the people, hi, Lee, uh, the people who originally uh, were receiving this, to them it's an agricultural reference. These are farm animals that were stiff-necked. So I'll use two examples. One is oxen pulling the plow, and the other is donkeys or mules carrying loads. Um, An oxen pulling the plow, you're telling it where to go. You're the master, you're holding the plow, and you're telling this oxen where to go. And the oxen, as they get off course, as their head turns, you've got a goad, right? And so you kind of poke and pry the oxen, go the way I want you to go. And usually the oxen will turn its head away from the goad and get back on track. But some of them were really stubborn. Some of them were going to go the way they were going to go, and that's called a stiff-necked animal. Or maybe you've got a donkey. 
donkey's carrying a load for you, and you want it to turn to go down to your neighbor's house. It's not the same house you went to yesterday, so your donkey's pissed, and your donkey just wants to stand right where it is. So you poke it, and you prod it, and you yank it, and you pull it, and it doesn't move. That's a stiff-necked animal. That's what the Bible's talking about when it says, don't be stiff-necked. It's talking about animals who thought they were the master, animals who didn't want to be led, animals who were stubborn. Okay, so that's the basic idea. And we can understand that, right? Like, it's easy to relate to our own lives and God. It's, if you're a stiff-necked person, you don't want to be led by God. You don't want him to be your master. You want to be in charge. You think you have a good idea. This is easy. So I Googled some more because that was too easy. I said, Google, why are donkeys stubborn? And like everything in 2018, all the hits were about the new counterintuitive thinking, right? <laughs> the common sense has been wrong for millennia. For millennia, Google says, people have believed that donkeys were stubborn because they're so dumb. Unlike a smart horse, which you could train and could learn how to do its job, a donkey just doesn't learn anything. You can't train it to do anything. It's going to do whatever the heck it wants because it's so stupid it doesn't learn. But the, common, the conventional wisdom, I want to say, has been wrong the entire time. The problem is not that they're stupid, it's that donkeys are smart. Unlike a stupid horse that'll just follow its master wherever you want to go, <laughs> the donkey knows better. If you want to go a new direction, the donkey's smart enough to know that the unknown is dangerous. So you want to turn it down to a new neighbor's house, it's going to stop, and it's going to think about the situation. It's a rational response, right? This is new, it might be bad. And it's going to stay there until it decides whether it makes sense for itself to go that way or not. It's almost like Ryan planted this on the internet for me, right? Because <laughs> if I told you all you were too stupid to obey God, nobody would track with that. But you're too smart. <laughs> Feels good, right? Feels good. Hang on, I got ahead of myself. Oh, I went pretty far. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so that fits us a lot better, right? We're not too dumb to follow God. We're too smart to just let go and let him lead us. We think we know better sometimes. He proposes that we do something we've never done before, and we say, I don't think you realize how dangerous that is. I don't know what that's going to look like for me. And you're not really in charge. This is my life. I'm in charge. Thank you for the suggestion but I'm going to stay here and consider my options until I'm ready to go. If we want to move, you can go my way. Part of what I like about this donkey analogy is that it makes it clear that resisting God isn't about willpower or self-control or some other ability you have. It's about being a donkey. You're a donkey who thinks you know better than your human master. And I want to acknowledge, like any metaphor or analogy, whatever this is, there's limits to this one, right? Because sometimes a donkey's going to be right when the human's wrong, because we're not perfect. Maybe there really is a snake behind that rock, or maybe the current really is too strong in this stream. But God's never wrong, okay? So you really are always wrong. When you resist God, you're wrong, and he's right, and you're screwing up. But who cares? Like, we all do this all the time. I just told you it's the permanent state of the human condition, right, even for believers. So how bad could this be? Well, I want to focus on it because the Bible also tells us that anytime you're resisting God, it's costly. Whenever you yield to God, the cost-benefit is positive. It pays for you. Whether you understand it or not, it does. And when you resist, 
It's costly every single time. So this morning I want to focus on some ways that we resist God, and I want to try and understand what the benefits are to yielding in these situations. For me, this is the most helpful way to think about yielding to God. Anytime I'm having a really hard time with something God wants me to do, or that I think God wants me to do, it's so much easier if I understand what's the value proposition here. Why does he want me to do it? What's in it for me? So I want to try and do that this morning with the stuff I want to talk about. So that's point one. I have three points, unlike some people. (laughs) Our discussion today is about failing to trust God when you aren't willing to submit to him because you don't agree with what he wants you to do or you don't understand it. You've got your reasons, and they're a credit to your intelligence and to your sense of self-preservation, but they also make you a jackass. And don't take that personally. I'm the worst offender among you. Point number two, who's my target audience here? If you're here and you're not a believer, there's only one form of stiff-neckedness that I'm worried about, and that's that you haven't repented and received Jesus as your Savior. That's it. So at the end of service, when you get up and go to the back to pray, as you all will, that's all I want you to pray for. Just ask God for the faith to believe that he, Jesus died for your sins, and you can accept him as your Savior and live forever with him. That's it. But in the Bible, when it says stiff-necked, it's almost always talking about people who believe in God, people who know his commands, people who believe he exists, right? He is the creator of the universe. He is all-powerful. He's just not in charge of my life. Those are the people that are stiff-necked. So I want to focus on that group today. I think as Christians, we often misunderstand ourselves, misunderstand what we're doing. For the non-believers, a lot of non-believers are very comfortable telling you, yes, of course I rejected God. I heard it, it was proposed to me, and I've rejected it. Christians, we're a lot more complicated than that. Why does our faith not look like the faith in the Bible? Well, it's been customized to fit to my life. I live in complicated times, I'm a complicated person, and I live the way I think is best. I've got a custom faith. Out of that book that hasn't changed in 100 generations, mine's custom. We don't recognize how much of our life is lived in rebellion to God. Excuse me. We know we should lust less. We know we should be more kind and more loving. I'm not saying that we're completely blind to sin, but most of us only yield to God's authority when we think it's going to work out for us, when it's going to make us more like the person we want to be, or it's going to give us more of the life that we want to have. Something terrible happened on my app. All right, forget it. I'm just kidding. I totally need this. (laughs) What happened? This is awful. All right, where was I? Jesus. Thanks. Um, No, seriously, I need this to reopen. There it comes. That's weird that he would do that for somebody. Good, good, good. Not too far. Ah, okay. So we only want to do it when we think it's a good idea, when it gives us more of the life that we want. So what do we do when God tells us to do something that we don't want to do? We kick the goad, right? We resist the instruction. We decide not to yield. We resist the Holy Spirit. 
and so we get way off track. And that's what the passage of scripture that was read this morning adds to the list of metaphors I described this morning. Resisting the Holy Spirit. That's what uh, being stiff-necked is. It's the same thing. It's the same thing that caused Israel to wander around the desert for 40 years. It's the same thing that resulted in them uh, being enslaved to the Babylonians, or what do we want to call that? In, uh, I'm not going to think more about it. They were stuck with the Babylonians for a couple generations. It's the same thing that led to them rejecting the Messiah. It's the same thing that led to Jesus' crucifixion. It's the same thing that led to the early church being persecuted. It's people who recognize God as their God, who knew his commands, and who resisted the Holy Spirit. The cause was all the same for all of those things. That's what Stephen was trying to tell these people. That's what got him stoned to death. He lumped in their actions in that day with worshiping the golden calf in the desert. And so they took him outside and stoned him. I originally planned at this point, I was really looking forward to it, I was going to expand upon all those examples. I was going to spend a lot of time on it. I was going to talk about Israel's in the desert and it's just incredible manifestation of the Spirit. The Spirit has actually covered the entire mountain, Mount Sinai, however big that is. It's a dark cloud at the bottom, and it's flaming on top. And they think, where could God have gone? Let's build an idol to worship over here. <laughs> Freaking idiots. Or uh, Jeremiah, he's predicted, like, everything correctly. The, Jerusalem is under siege, they're under attack, and Babylon is coming to get them, and Babylon's big and scary, and Jeremiah keeps telling them what's going to happen. He keeps being right. And then he tells them, God wants you to just accept your punishment, submit to your invaders, and God will restore you later. And they just can't see past that first costly step with enough faith to believe that it's going to pay off for them. So they say, you're crazy. We're going to stay inside the walls and see how long we can keep having fun. Or the Pharisees, who see Jesus perform miracles, and their reaction is to go outside and plot his death. Literally, they see the miracle, they immediately walk over here and begin plotting his death. But I think mostly I just want to spend time on that stuff so I could avoid the next section. Um, the reason that I'm talking about being stiff-necked in the middle of this months of talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. So I, I'll just cut to the chase. I wrote that here, though, so you know it's not like I just thought this up. Uh, this topic isn't like some intellectual itch for me that I've been dying to scratch. It's, this is my struggle. This, I'm like aware that this is my struggle. This is my issue. This is what I do. I'm stiff-necked. And I'm hoping that by sharing it with you, a version of my story, a part of my story, I can help you avoid making the same mistakes. But mostly, I'm hoping that by getting up here and talking about it, I can avoid making the mistake again. I just want to stop being jackass. Point number three. I'll call it the rest of the story. When I was in middle school, this was in the mid-90s, uh, the Holy Spirit began giving new and powerful evidence of his presence and of his blessings in my church. It was happening in a lot of other churches around the country and around the world. It seemed to be concentrated in cities. I googled this too, so this isn't like I knew about it at the time. But it seems like it was concentrated in cities. And in the northeast, the epicenter seemed to be Toronto. But a few hours away in Rochester, where I grew up, was another like hot spot, right? And so God came and visited my church, unexpectedly. Before he came, uh, it was a pretty good church. And then around this time, we started singing more songs, and more people started getting up and going for prayer. And my pastor started 
more and more often coming up to the mic and saying that God had just given him a word for the congregation that morning and you had to focus really hard if you wanted to figure out what the heck he was talking about. I don't know if this is ringing a bell for any of you guys. <laughs> but then it started to go like way beyond that and way beyond what's already happened here. Because it's kind of like what Alicia was talking about last week. And I think this is what a lot of us are kind of afraid of. Once you start, you don't really know where he's going to take you. So Alicia talked about she raised her hands in worship, and this is a breakthrough. It, it is. But for me, I would like to raise my hands in worship, and that would be my new plateau. This is my new normal with God. But what happened for Alicia was she raised her hands in worship, and now all of a sudden she's praying with strangers on the street, and she's speaking in tongues in her bedroom, and it gets weird after a while, right? And in my church, it got a lot weirder than that. We had tongues, yes. Prophecy, yes. Uh, there was some crying, Sure. But when, like, the presence of the Holy Spirit, we'll call it, I don't think it, I don't want to talk about it. When the presence of the Holy Spirit would come, you didn't know exactly how people were going to react. Some people would laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh, and some people would cry, and some people would shake. Not like tremors, but like shaking for, like, minutes or hours or days. Okay, it was weird. And you've seen here, as more people go to pray, We've got more people than we do prayers, and that's going to happen this morning. Uh, and so we line up. But in my church, lining up didn't work. Because when you got prayed for, you usually fell down. So imagine you line up behind Randy Williams, and he falls down. And there's 13 <laughs> people behind you. It doesn't work. Randy's that guy right there, for anybody who doesn't know. Say hi, Randy. So the way it worked in our church, in our church you got prayed for in the front and it's not that we had a bigger front than this. It was like this. So people would come up for prayer, and then the elders, especially my dad, because he loves moving a chair, would come to the front, and they'd start stacking chairs and pushing them back and making room, and it would be like trying to find your spot for your picnic in Central Park. You know, you're like trying to triangulate with everybody else's real estate, but if someone else comes closer, you don't want to be too close, so you leave a little extra on the right side to suggest, like, maybe the next person can go over there. <laughs> and then you just wait, right? So the prayers make their way through the crowd with their partner, the catcher, the pray. <laughs> they liked it over there. You got a catcher, right? Um, because you're going to fall down, and I can count on one hand the number of people who had any pain from falling down, but it can get kind of like awkward if people start falling on top of each other, or like your heads are touching, or your feet are crossed. And so you've got a catcher, so that as people fall, uh, you lay them in a peaceful spot. And I've been this big since birth, <laughs> and I was pretty young, so I was often a catcher. I was on catching duty. And this is what I really remember about that time. I'm never going to forget this stuff, because everybody fell different. And it was a hard job being a catcher. Because <laughs> you didn't want to like hold them up, right? You didn't want to be like, no. <laughs> so you leave your hands like an inch off their back, somewhere in the middle, and then uh, you just kind of waited. And some people would just crumble. You know, like a three-year-old goes like limp, so you can't pick them up. Some people would go down, you know, like a lumberjack log. Some people would wobble back and forth. I hated that because you never knew they were like, faking you out. And then you get complacent, and then all of a sudden they're on top of you. Or my favorite was some people would start going, and then they must have had the strongest legs because they'd get to like here and then just hold it until some extra little gust blew them down, right? But the thing that really freaked me out is how many people the head and neck would go limp, and I just didn't want to be handing out concussions every Sunday. 
So you catch people and you want to like transition toward, when you get really close to the floor, you want to transition so you get a hand under their head, like you're putting a baby down. But you get halfway down, then you realize someone took your real estate. Like that guy fell the wrong way and now he's behind you. So you're playing human Tetris. It's complicated. So what I, I usually pick like the most crowded side of the room so it would fill up fast and I can go back to my seat. Uh, of course, my church could only hold, like, I don't know, maybe 200 people, maybe less. So it felt contained, right? Like, there could only be, like, I don't know, 75 or 100 people laying down at a time. And this wasn't too overwhelming. But then sometimes we'd go to Toronto, and we'd visit the big church in Toronto, where the same stuff was happening, but on a bigger scale. So there'd be thousands of people in the room, and do the same thing. you sing songs, pastor would preach, and then it'd be time for prayer. And they had it figured out. They had masking tape lines in the back of the room. And you lined up like dominoes, getting ready to be knocked down. And they'd come down, they'd pray for you, boom, 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 boom. People would fall, boom, 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 boom. But it wasn't all, like, that sounds like actually kind of controlled. It wasn't all that orderly. Sometimes a whole group of people would just kind of fall out in their chairs as if, like, a wind had knocked them down. Or sometimes hundreds of people, because the number of people in the room, hundreds of people might all be laughing at once. And it's not like the laugh track on a sitcom. This is, everyone's laughing at a different joke. So this is like if you had the tabernacle choir up here and they're all singing a different song. It's really weird sound. Anyway, so back home in Rochester, we started having Wednesday night services and everybody would show up on a Wednesday night, even though Full House at that point was on Wednesday nights. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit would come and the manifestations would come. And before you knew it, you start hearing stories. People start sharing their testimonies about what's going on, kind of like here but just the percentages were way higher, right? People's lives are changing. People are being freed from addictions to sinful habits, to drugs, to alcohol. Um, people's relationships are being restored. People are being healed of stuff. Some people, a toothache went away. Uh, some people were healed of cancer. Healed of cancer, right? Uh, I kind of feel like I've talked about this enough. Yeah, so that, you get the gist, right? So what's the point? First thing I want to say is some of you experienced this stuff. A lot of you heard about it. And so I can already feel you like reacting to my story. Like you've already heard these stories. You've already reacted to them. You don't need to hear about it again. But I want to tell you as someone who a lot of you know and who's very serious about what I'm going to say that this was real. This is a real thing that happened. I don't mean like it factually occurred. I mean, the Holy Spirit really knocked people down and really made people laugh and really healed people. I know a woman who walked into the Toronto church with cancer and walked out without cancer. Maybe you can argue it happened in like the next 24 hours before she got to a doctor, but the cancer disappeared, okay? I know people whose lives were changed. I saw my church change. I saw them turn outward to the neighborhood we lived in, to the trauma in the lives of the people in the homes around us. It was real, okay? The Holy Spirit did this stuff. And some of it was fake. I don't know how much, but of this, I am the most reliable witness there is because I faked it. I'd go up for prayer sometimes, and you don't want to be like the one guy who's not into it. So, you know, the prayer is being really sincere and everyone else is falling down, and so you just kind of lean back into your catcher, and then you're going to lay there for a little while. Sometimes I'd pray. Sometimes I didn't feel like it. I would just like 
count to see how long it was before the people around me got up so that then I'd remember how long I'd laid there if someone asked me later. Sometimes I'd plot my next series of Tecmo Bowl moves against my brother because when I was younger, he convinced me to punt on third down and I've been plotting my revenge for a while. <laughs> Super messed up. I'm talking about Jim, Jim Carpenter. <laughs> and my mom never stuck up for me. My mom's here today. Hi, mom. And I saw worse than that. I'm sure I saw people who forced the laughing, who forced the shaking. I, am, I have no doubt that some of these prophecies were just things people thought of that they thought would be nice to share and say, like, thus says the Lord in front of it. There was fake stuff going on, and I loved it. I found it so reassuring that there was fake stuff going on. I was going to say oddly reassuring, but I don't, even today I don't think there's anything odd about it. It makes perfect sense to me, right? I didn't understand what was going on. I still don't really understand what was going on. I knew I had no control over it, and as far as I could tell, nobody I trusted had any control over it. And no one was giving me a complete explanation of why this was happening or what was happening, and that's not really how I roll. So it was nice, because now I knew there was fake stuff, so now I could dismiss the whole thing. My proudest moment my proudest moment in the whole, I don't know, it was three, four, five years. My proudest moment came in Toronto in the huge church. My whole youth group had gone up. They like to bring the youths because this can be a defining moment in their lives, right? And we went up, and you sing, and you hear the sermon, and that's time to line up. And I think we all lined up. Definitely I lined up. I had decided earlier in the day that I was going to show myself strong, right? I wasn't going down. The Holy Spirit was so tough, he could knock me over. So I went up, and I braced myself. And they came and they prayed for everybody. Everybody went down, boom, 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 boom. And they got to me and they kept praying. And they kept praying, I don't know, five minutes, ten minutes. Then they moved on. But this church didn't give up, right? So they'd only ever got like 80 to 90% of the people on the first pass. And then some of you would go sit down, but then they'd come back. They're like, oh, he's still waiting for me? That means he wants, he wants it. So three passes they gave me. Three times they came by, and all three times I stood strong. I wobbled a little bit, but it's probably just in my head. The point is, I didn't go down. I was still in control, and it was great. Uh, so again, why am I telling you guys this? One quick tiny reason is some of this stuff could happen here, and I figure you might as well hear from me first, right? Thought, yeah. But second, <laughs> that's not the warning I wanted to give you. I have a warning I want to give you, and that's that it could happen here, and you'll miss it. Like, some of you will leave, and so you'll actually miss it. Like, you won't be present. I get that. But some of you will, like I was, you'll be in the room, and you'll have your best church brain on, and it'll just pass you right by. And 20 years from now, when you want to give a summary like I just gave, you'll remember certain things. You'll remember something that was very real or very fake. But if you want to be able to explain the whole thing, you'll Google it. You'll call your parents. And you'll call your old friends. You call your siblings, hopefully you've got an army of them like I do, and you'll try to piece together recollections and confirm memories and try and get some coherent image of, yeah, I remember what happened to her, I remember what happened to him. What was I doing the whole time? Was it ever real for me? That's as close as you'll get. You could be here, and that's as close as you'll get to remembering it 20 years later is maybe somebody remembers you saying something at the time and it'll resonate? Maybe not. That brings me to where I am today. 
regretting my resistance so much that I'm willing to get up here and talk for way too long about a time in my life that I've spent 20 years trying to convince myself wasn't important at all. If I had to do it all over again, I'd do it very differently. Because now I realize I was kicking the goad the whole time, right? And I got so much further off the path that God had for me than I ever intended to be. It's not like I ever left church. I've been in church my whole life. I've always had a church home. Even as we moved around, we tried to find a church home. But like Ryan was saying a few weeks ago, it became an intellectual exercise for me. I like this. I'm even smarter than Ryan. <laughs> Let's be honest, a lot of us are. <clears throat> but, you know, I read the Bible sometimes. I knew a lot of scripture. I read a lot of books. I knew more scripture than some of the pastors I followed. I knew more theology than some of their teachers. I never stopped reading. I never stopped caring. But I also never stopped guarding myself against the possibility that God would try and assert himself as the master of my life. That he would try and treat me like his donkey, just leading me where he wanted me to go. I love God. I think he's beautiful from a distance. I like to think about him, but I also like being in control. Not of everything, just of this. I like being in control of this. You can ask my kids. For the most part, I'll let my kids do what they want. But I do what I want. And not for no reason. I trusted my judgment. I'm good at running this life. I've done pretty well for myself. So why would I risk doing something that might jeopardize it? I knew how to get a good job. So I did. Why would I risk losing financial security just to follow something that maybe was a voice in my head? I was proud I didn't need anything from God. Right? You hear a lot, the Christian walk is, faith is pursuing God's promises for your life. That's where obedience comes in. If you really want what God is offering, then you'll obey. It'll be automatic. I've told you this back in August. The only other time I've stood in front of the room... But what if you don't want any of the stuff he's offering? What if you don't need it? I didn't need his financial assistance. I had a good job. I didn't need his miraculous financial healing. I had access to good doctors. And most of all, I certainly didn't need to fuss about pursuing his presence or seeking his face or any of that jibbly-jab nonsense because it always, the only part about that that makes any sense is if it's going to change you you're going to be exposed to something that's going to change you in a way you can't predict. First of all, I didn't want to risk the little faith I already had by pursuing something that might turn out to be fake. That scared me. But second, and way more importantly, my overarching concern was I didn't know what God would do to me if I let him. You raise your hands, who knows how weird it's going to get. And I didn't want to give up the self that I worked so hard to make and that I like so much. Way more than the rest of you like this self? I love it. <laughs> so I learned how to be content without God. It's noble, right? I figured I'd meet him when I died. I joined the club back when I accepted Jesus as my Savior. And so all that stuff about seeking his face and his presence in heaven, I'd get that later. I'm in charge now. He'll be in charge after I die. It bothered me and it frustrated me to see that my life wasn't that much different than anybody else's I knew in school or law school or at the law firm or 
beyond that. But I'm a nice guy. And like, I'm a good family man. And I knew all those scriptures. And I still believed in God. So I could get over the frustration because I had what I wanted. That's been my path for the past 20 years. This is my cautionary tale. It doesn't sound that bad, right? Um, at least not the way I tell it because I like it so much. Until you compare it to the other people who went to my church who didn't resist the people who received the payoff that God was promising them. I want to share a little bit about that too, what the other side of the story is meant to show you. So not everybody at the church had the same reaction I did, dodging the implications of what happened. My parents are here today, like I said, Bill and Moe, right here. My dad's deaf in his left ear, so if you want to prank him, that's the way to do it. <laughs> and when Ryan started doing his Holy Spirit thing, they were my first call, because I thought, if they downplay this thing in the 90s, then I'm good. I can relax. I can have the cynical approach to Ryan's thing. I can show him how he's off track, because I'm smarter than him, and we can steer this thing back on course. But they didn't skip a beat. I asked them a really open-ended, vague question. Like, what was your experience of that stuff at church in the 90s? And I thought, you know, it's like out of the blue. It was set them up perfectly to not have anything to say. But here's... Uh, my paraphrase of what my dad said to me. Being on the floor, full of the Holy Spirit, my whole life exposed to him was life-changing. And those experiences were cornerstones for my life that I always look back on. I can see how real and powerful God is and how he loves me. I had edited out the F word here like six times. My own dad had been living the past 20 years with the overwhelming love and presence of God as the firm foundation for his life, and I'd been puttering around, proud of my lack of need. So I've spent the last 20 years missing out on so much of what God had to offer. Not just for me, but through me, right? Not only had I not been faithful, I hadn't been obedient, I hadn't been fruitful. How many other people missed their chance because I wasn't where I was supposed to be? I shushed, that, I shushed that still small voice in my head so many times I couldn't hear it anymore. The Bible has a lot of stories about this, what I'm talking about here. People whose lives of faith are built on uh, an important and memorable manifestation of God in their life. Moses and the burning bush. Uh, Samuel and the voice of God. Paul on the road to Damascus. Even Jesus, born of the Spirit, fully God and fully man, before he's taken out into the desert and tempted, before he begins his three years of ministry that he knows is going to end with the worst death in human history. And I don't mean the crucifixion, but I mean dying for the sins of everyone. He's being baptized, and as he comes up, the Holy Spirit manifests as a dove and rests on his shoulder. And the voice of his Father from heaven speaks out and says, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. His ministry was not easy. His death was brutal. You don't think he remembered that day? The Bible also tells us one of the reasons it gives us miracles. I'd like a miracle. I have a heart problem I'd like him to fix. So it'd be great. If he fixed my heart, I'd have that miracle. My heart would be fixed. But more than that, miracles are lessons for us. To learn that we live by every word that proceeds from the voice of God. God gives us these experiences, God gives us these miracles 
so that we can build our faith on a firm foundation, so that we can know that he will fulfill his promises, so that when he goads us, we'll actually go where he's leading because we'll believe that his promises are good and it'll pay off down the road. So that was loud enough. It's that firm foundation that Alicia was talking about last week. This is a special and rare opportunity to build one of those, the kind that can withstand the storm when it comes. God offers to change us, yes, but it's so that we can experience his Holy Spirit, experience heaven now here on earth. So here I am, back at the scene of the crime, so to speak, and despite all my neglect and even my intentional attempts to forget the whole thing and downplay it, I can't deny it. The same way, the same way that I'd never mistake the smell of my mother's tuna noodle casserole that I haven't had in like 15 years, I can't deny the feeling in the back of this church every Sunday. I can't deny what it feels like to be prayed for by Ryan and Logan and Dane or anyone else on the prayer team. I can't deny that it's happening again. I'm just grateful to be here for it. Holy Spirit's doing something here. For whatever reason, he's making himself known in a different than normal way. I don't know why now. I don't know how long it's going to last. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's happening. And I know that I need to hear the voice of my father telling me that he's well-pleased. I know that my life will be better if I let him change it. If I let him take control. If I just stop kicking the goad. I realize that for the past 20 years, I've been shunning his treasure to protect my corner of the barn. I've been a jackass. So that's the point today. Don't make my mistake. Don't miss this. Let's not resist the spirit. Let's accept the invitation to the feast. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Submit yourselves to him. Just ask for faith to get over yourselves. Stop trying to outsmart him. Stop clinging to all the defenses you've been using to protect yourself from him. Stop being so intolerant of change that you refuse to go where he's leading you. In other words, don't be stiff-necked. Don't be a jackass. Pray with me. Lord, thank you that that part's over. I think everyone said amen. Holy Spirit, I know you're already here. I know you've come. Don't leave anybody behind today. You promise, Lord. You promise that if we obey, you'll come and make your home with us. Reward our obedience this morning as we seek you, as we yield to your goad. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.